0: Tonight we're going to begin a brand new study uh, as we have closed up a few weeks ago, closed our home series and so now uh, we're going to go back into one of the minor prophets in the book of Haggai. So I invite you to take your Bible and turn to the book of Haggai tonight and if you say, well, I don't really know where Haggai is. Go to that division of the Old Testament and the New Testament. You know about where that is, where Matthew is, and then go back just a few. You go back to Malachi, Zechariah, Haggai. So right in between the Z's, Zephaniah and Zechariah, you'll find Haggai. And sometimes the most poignant truths in our lives come from the smallest places. That is certainly true when it comes to people. As a parent, I have found that oftentimes the greatest truths come out of the mouths of my own children. I mean, that's why we say the phrase, out of the mouths of babes, right? Our kids seem to have a way of of saying things that are just so direct and to the point and speak to our hearts and lives. And this is also certainly true for the short book of Haggai. And I want to make something quite clear from the beginning of this study. The name of this little prophetic book is pronounced Haggai, all right? Perhaps you have heard a children's song that we have used in Awana, may or may not have used in Iwana. and to help them remember it, it's, and to stay in the little tune, it said Haggai. Okay, I'm going to tell you that's great that you remembered it that way, but I'm sorry you remembered it wrong, okay? It is Haggai, so um, you, can, you can take that knowledge. If you learn nothing else tonight, you say, oh, I learned how to say the book Haggai, okay? Um, Haggai is the second shortest book in the Old Testament. Who knows what the shortest book in the Old Testament is since Haggai is the second shortest? Anybody? Well, that's New Testament. It would be Obadiah, which is one chapter long. In the Old Testament, the second shortest book is Haggai. But there is beauty in the brevity of Haggai. In two chapters, we find that his messages are simple, direct, and which is uncommon. Something that's uncommon for those those prophets in the Old Testament, the messages of Haggai are quite effective to the people of Israel. If you know anything about the prophets who spoke to God's people in the Old Testament, you know that's an outlier. It seemed like these guys spoke into the void more often than not as people refused to get right with God or, or, or just kind of marginalized the message of God a lot of times. And he speaks God's word to the people and we see God using that word to convict them of their sin and the people responding in obedience And the message of Haggai still speaks to us today, challenging the church of God to take action for him. We see this idea here, and we'll talk about this theme in just a minute, that that the theme of of Haggai is going to be God's work first, prioritizing the work of God. And tonight, uh, we're going to look at an introduction to Haggai, and in a minute, we're going to talk about Haggai chapter 1, verses 1 through 6, and this idea of having no time for God. But in order to to really appreciate the book of Haggai, I'd like to take a few minutes and kind of give you an introduction to the book of Haggai tonight. And I'm going to begin with a little bit of historical context. How many of you like history? Okay. Um, and, And I think one of the most fascinating things as you study history is understanding where the books of the Bible and the people of the Bible fit into the historical context of the world. Right, Um, I don't know about you, but sometimes it felt like you know we were reading things in the Bible and you're reading things in history class. But it comes alive when you begin to hear the things from history class and the Bible put together to understand. Okay, this is where this fits in context with what's going on. So let's give some historical context of this book um, and and to understand the basics of the times in which Haggai ministered. Haggai's ministry takes place in the nation of Israel after the exile. It's known as the post-exilic period in the nation of Israel. So one of the dates you want to remember, you might want to jot this down in your notes or just something to to hang your hat on, uh, is 586 BC. 586 BC. Who knows what happened in 586? Okay. There we go. Jerusalem fell to Babylon. Okay, sounds like you had it right there in front of you or if you're in your brain. Okay, study Bibles are great for that. Okay, 586 is the date that Jerusalem and the temple uh, were destroyed by the Babylonian Empire. Now, Babylon had been in the area um, Um, beginning to besiege and attack Jerusalem, 588, 587, but 586 is when finally uh, they wiped out Jerusalem and destroyed the temple. 586 then is, of course, when a man by the name of Daniel, a young man by the name of Daniel and his friends were taken back to Babylon by King Nebuchadnezzar. And the destruction of the temple was a big deal. And this is a big point of the book of Haggai, we have to understand about the temple. Because the temple is where the worship of God took place in the nation of Israel. The temple is where the expectations of God's law regarding worship to him were carried out. All of those sacrifices, all of those things that people were supposed to do that you read about in the book of Leviticus, it all happened in the temple. It's a very important thing. The temple also symbolized the presence of God with his people. And in 586, this temple that was destroyed was the temple that had been built by Solomon. And now it has been completely sacked and destroyed by outsiders in God's just judgment on Judah for her sin. God had been very specific to his people when they came into the promised land that if you abandon me, I will judge you. And just as I brought you into the land, I can take you out in captivity. And that's exactly what God did in response to the people's sin. And so the people now could still worship God, but not in the way he prescribed. We're reminded um, when you read the book of Daniel, in Daniel chapter 6, that Daniel continued to worship God by, by kneeling in front of his window towards Jerusalem and offering his prayers to the Lord. It was a dark time for God's people, though it was something that was promised to occur, as we said, should they choose to abandon him, which they had done. However, God's promise had had also promised to restore his people if they would return to him, and he began to do that not 50 years later. Okay, so 586, um, Babylon comes in and wipes out Jerusalem, the temple, takes the people captive. Now, fast forward to 539 B.C., and you understand we're B.C., so all the dates are going the the way you you and I aren't used to. You know, we add a date every year, and before Christ, we subtract one. So we're in 539 B.C., and we meet this guy. His name is Cyrus the Persian. And Cyrus the Persian, in 539, conquered the city or the the empire uh, and, and the city of Babylon and he took a much different approach to the peoples who were subjugated under him. While Babylon sought to impose their will on the people they conquered and impose their religion on those people, and again, you can read all about that in the book of Daniel, Cyrus granted these people religious freedom, and he sought to, in a way, befriend the subjects of his kingdom. And so in 538, An edict was issued by Cyrus permitting Jews who wished to return home and rebuild the temple to do so. And you can read about that in Ezra 1 through 6. We read about those people who returned. And we learn that somewhere around 50,000 Jews returned to Jerusalem under Cyrus at this time in 538. And then, two years later, in 536, the people began a great project. We read in Ezra 3, verse 10. When the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord. That's an important thing, right? The temple is an important building. It's the place where they worship God. The priests stood in their apparel with trumpets. And the Levites, the sons of Asaph, with symbols to praise the Lord. According to the ordinance of David, king of Israel. In reality, what I've done, by the way, is I pulled a verse. I just wanted to pull one verse out of Ezra 3. And so I picked verse 10, but you can read the surrounding verses to get better context later on of, of what's going on. But here what they have done is they laid the foundation of the temple. And that's a wonderful time because the work of God was going forth again. However, the work of God does not go unhindered. What you would find not long after this is that there would be Samaritan harassment towards the people of Israel and Jerusalem, and that resulted in Persian pressure, and then that would lead to a halt in the work of the temple. And so the people, though they had laid the foundation of the temple, became discouraged in the work, and they quit working on the temple. And now this abandoned temple project would lay dormant for 16 years. So we've gone from 536 to 520. 520. And in 520, the temple is still not finished, and God sends a messenger to stir up the people. Guess who he sends? Haggai. And we have to understand that since their abandonment of the work, the Persian Empire has experienced some changes in power. The ruler of the Persian Empire in 520, when this play takes place, is Darius Hystaspes. He is now on the throne of Persia. By the way, if you've heard the name Darius before, you say, oh, that's from the book of Daniel. Not the same Darius. He was a Darius associated with the government of Cyrus in the book of Daniel. But Darius has his uh, rules from 522 to 486. And it is under his rule that we see the book of Haggai take place. So I've mentioned some dates to you, but I'd like to give you a date for the book of Haggai. Haggai's messages. Interestingly enough, every message that Haggai delivers is dated, so we know exactly when everything takes place. His first message, which begins in chapter 1, verse 1, takes place on what we would know, okay? And I'm going to try to give it to you so we understand. uh, We would know this as August 29th, 520 B.C., okay? So if you want to put it in our way of thinking, that's when it takes place. The second message is on October 17th of 520. And then the third and fourth messages take place on the same day, and that is December 18th, 520. So all of these things take place in the span of less than four months the book of Haggai takes place. We know from the history of Israel that the temple would later be finished in 515 BC before it would be renovated under Herod close to the time of Christ. And since this book does not record the temple's completion, we date the book of Haggai and its writings around 520, perhaps 519, depending on when all of these things were compiled. The author of the book of Haggai is, most likely, its main speaker, Haggai. Though, if you read the book, he's often referred to in the third person This is the most reasonable conclusion based on the information available to us. So that leads us to the question, who is Haggai? Well, unfortunately, I'm not going to give you the most satisfying answer tonight. Because Haggai is mentioned 11 times in the Old Testament. And nine of those times, he's mentioned in his own book. The other two times, he's mentioned in Ezra just as someone who was present there. We know nothing about Haggai's family. We know that his name means festive or festival, and that leads some to postulate that this means he was born on or around one of the Jewish festival observances. But even this is not confirmed information. So really, we know no personal information about Haggai. What do we know? Well, we know he is a messenger of God. He speaks not his own thoughts or his own words, but that which the Lord has commissioned him to speak, as was so often the case with the Old Testament prophets, they would declare, thus says the Lord. This is what God has said. He is also, something interesting to note, the first prophet to come to the nation of Israel after the exile. And he is also closely associated with the prophet that comes right after him in, the, in these books the prophet Zechariah. But Haggai was a man sent by God at the right time with the right message to help God's people do the right thing. And so that leads us then to the theme of the book of Haggai. Haggai's main thrust is to rouse God's people to prioritize God's work. He sought to stir them up to rebuilding the temple in Jerusalem. And so this is the theme that we take for this study as I gave you a minute ago, if you want a theme to hang your hat on for the book of Haggai, it would be this, God's work first. I love these little themes for the books of, of, the, of the Bible. Uh, I love to, to have something to kind of hang your hat on when you think of Haggai. And so my goal would be for this is that if you think of Haggai, you think, okay, God's work first, the priority of God's work in the lives of the followers of God. The preeminence of serving God is driven soundly home. However, as you traverse the little book of Haggai, you will find some sub-themes that pop up. You'll find uh, there's a broad theme that that is woven not only in Haggai, but also in many of the minor prophets, such as uh, Zechariah and Malachi, that they speak of God's restoration of his people from exile, because this is something God promised to do, that if people returned to him and worship him and would obey him, he would restore them. Haggai also then emphasizes the presence of God's spirit with his people. And he also emphasizes the physical blessings of God on his people for obedience and the removal of those things in disobedience. This is part of God's covenant with him, with the the people. That God promised that there would be uh, blessings for obedience and curses for disobedience. We're going to see that here in just a few minutes as Haggai mentions these things. And finally, at the end of Haggai... There is a messianic note that looks towards the overthrow of the nations at the end of this short book, because the whole time, the word of God points us to who God is and the end of all things, and that is that God wins, and he is the one who will rule over the nations. And so with this, let us dive into this short but highly relevant book and look at verses one through six tonight, which teaches this, that delayed obedience is disobedience, and disobedience leads to, God's, uh, to God-appointed consequences. Perhaps you have thought about this or said something like this in your own home. We say this to our kids, this little phrase at the beginning, delayed obedience is disobedience. If God has called us to do something and we put off doing it when we know we're supposed to do it, that's tantamount to disobeying God. Just because you don't want to do something right now, or you don't feel like you should do it right now, doesn't mean that you can set your own schedule. God called the people to obey him. And so Haggai comes to stir up their hearts and to remind them that they have disobeyed God and that he points out in their lives there are consequences because they have disobeyed God. And so tonight, we see in verses 1 through 6 that there is a job unfinished In the city of Jerusalem. And in verse 1, we meet the leaders and see the message of Haggai, or or the opening of the message of Haggai. It says, in the second year of King Darius, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet to Zerubbabel the son of Shelatiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua the son of Jehozadak the high priest, saying, so as Haggai's first message opens, we are met here with the date. Now, as we mentioned a few minutes ago, I'll say it again just so you kind of have a spot to understand where we are. This, is, this date that, that is given here would coordinate with August 29th, 520 B.C. in our calendar way of thinking. Um, it is also interesting to note that this is the first day of the month where Haggai is ministering. That's a big deal in this context in Jerusalem. It would mean that there would be people gathered together for the observance of the new moon feast. And so therefore, he would have an audience to speak to and deliver the message of God to that day. The people would be readily listening to what he had to say. And it is very clear from the beginning whose message this is. Did you catch that? The word of the Lord came by Haggai. This is not Haggai's messenger, but the Lord's. And you notice there, it's all capital letters when it speaks of the Lord. It speaks of Yahweh, the covenant name of God for his people. I am. Haggai is the messenger of Yahweh. And so a failure to heed the message that Haggai delivers to the people is not an affront to Haggai. It is tantamount to rejecting God. Because it's not Haggai's message, it's God's message. That's always been the case of God's prophets, that those who were privileged to be his spokesmen to the nation of Israel were not delivering their words, but God's words. And so when Israel turned her back on the prophets, she was not turning her back on people, she was turning her back on God. And when Israel then did that, she faced God's discipline. And you know, as Haggai declared not his own words, but God's word, so should this be the same today for anyone who declares the word of God. From the pulpit in your local church to the family Bible time in your living room, from the discipleship meeting in the coffee shop to the ladies' conference, those instructing others in the things of God and how to apply them in life are responsible to declare, not what I think, but this is what God has said. That is our responsibility. Whenever you open the Word of God, whether you stand in front of people or you're sitting around or you're sitting across from someone, discipling them, or you're leading your family, your job is to give them the Word of God. Because there is little power in the preacher's words, but there is great power in God's word. Somebody said that years ago, it's not original with me, but I tell you right now, if you come to my office, that's right by my door on the way out every time. Why? Because it's not about what I say or you say, it's about what God says. And here, in what we would call the superscription of the message, we not only meet Haggai and his purpose but we also meet the current leadership of the returned people. And as the leaders, they're the ones who are first addressed, though the people will certainly receive God's message here in just a second. You meet two guys. One, the political leader. His name is Zerubbabel, and he is known as the governor of Judah. Now. Zerubbabel's name is very interesting. His name means seed of captivity. And that leads many people to believe that he was one who was born during the exile period. He is a descendant of the Davidic line. He is the grandson of King Jehoiachin, who is a descendant of King David. And the role that Zerubbabel plays is somewhat murky to our understanding today based on history and what we understand there. We understand he's a governor, and that word in the original language is a loan word from the Assyrian language. So what we understand is he has some type of local rule among the people, but of course, he is no king as the nation is under the control of the Persian Empire at this time. And so we meet him, and secondly then, we meet the second member of the leadership, this is the high priest, Joshua. Now Joshua, that is not a name that's unfamiliar to us. You know, We, we know about other people who are named Joshua, and that name means that, that Yahweh is salvation. And Joshua is, serves a very important role with the people. He is known as the high priest. He is the son of Jehoshadak. Now Jehoshadak is traced all the way back in his lineage, to Aaron, the first high priest who served for the people. And his role is very important because he is to help the people in their worship to God. As God's chosen people, the people's relationship to God is what is most vital in their lives. And remember, the nation of Israel was what we call a theocracy. They were ruled directly by God. You know, he would appoint, and we read about the judges that he would appoint, but, but there was no king in the land of Israel until you get to First Samuel chapter 8, when the people come to Samuel and they demand a king. From that time forward, they were ruled by a human king. But even after this, the nation was only successful when they remained faithful in worship and devotion to God. And if you've read uh, in the books of First and Second Kings of 1 and First and Second Chronicles uh, about these guys who led the divided kingdom of the Northern Kingdom of Israel and the Southern Kingdom of Judah, you know you see the, the spiral that the Northern Kingdom is on because they never had a godly king, and you see the roller coaster ride that the Southern Kingdom rides because they have some that are good and many who are evil. So Haggai comes first to these men who are the leaders of the people. Because they need to hear what God has to say about what is going on in the nation that they lead. And we see in verse 2 the excuse that has taken hold of the people of Israel. In verse 2, this is what God says, Thus speaks the Lord of hosts, saying, This people says, The time has not come, the time that the Lord's house should be built. So Haggai has here a message from the Lord, and he's referred here by the title, the Lord of Hosts. This is a title of God's that represents his might backing his commands. That he is the leader of the heavenly armies. He is the greatest force there is. Understand, the nation of Israel have been conquered and subjugated by a a mighty force and great force but that force that they have been subjugated by was no match compared to their God that's what this title reinforces here he is the one then who now speaks to them and when God speaks we do well to listen his mighty power the mighty power of our mighty God compels us to give him a listening ear that is ready to obey And here, God's message opens up with the excuse the people have been making regarding the building of the temple. And it is interesting to note the way in which God refers to Israel. Did you catch that in verse 2? What does God call the people of Israel? He calls them this people. Does that strike you as odd? I mean, do you remember the great promises that God made in Chronicles and in, 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 in Kings and when, when, when Solomon dedicated the temple? And he said, if my people, which are called by my name, that's not a promise, by the way, to the United States of America, that's a promise to the nation of Israel. That his people in that time, if they would call to him when they were in trouble and return to him, he would hear them. What did he say? My people. And now you get to Haggai chapter 1 verse 2. And what does he call them? Does he call them my people? No, he says this people. This, isn't, this is a, a, a purposeful thing that God does here. Why does he do that? Well, they didn't act like God's people. And so what is God doing? He's rebuking them for their sin. What a tremendous failure when the people of God fail to act like God's people. Israel was called to be a light to the nations. She was called to demonstrate for others the greatness of her God, but she failed so often in her mission, ultimately leading to her exile. And now, once again, we see the pattern of behavior that is emerging We have to understand God had not abandoned Israel, but he would not condone her actions either. And so we also, as Christians, if you know the Lord as your Savior, you cannot be disowned by God. God is very clear about that in the Scriptures. But we can harm the name of Christ and make ourselves ineffective for him by the way we act. And what we see here is the people were guilty of making excuses for not accomplishing the work that God had set them on. I mean, just notice the command from Cyrus at the time of Israel's release. This is the the command that that Cyrus had proclaimed and the purpose of the people's return. In Ezra chapter 1, verses 2 and 3, thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, all the kingdoms of the earth the Lord uh, God of heaven has given me. And he has commanded me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Who is among you of all his people? May his God be with him and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and build the house of the Lord of Israel. He is God, which is in Jerusalem. And as stated, the people would go back and they would begin to work only to face opposition. And after a while a mantra had formed in their lives. Did you catch that in verse two? What's the mantra? The time has not yet come. The time is not now. They weren't ready to obey God. The wind had left their sails. They were discouraged by the opposition. And let's recognize one thing, right? Discouragement is a very real thing, is it not? I mean, how many of you in your spiritual lives and serving God have ever been discouraged, right? It's a real enemy that we face. But do you understand that that if you do not face down discouragement with God's help, eventually it will lead you to apathy. This happens in other areas of our lives. I mean, how many of you have ever tried to implement a new habit into your life? Maybe you're going to exercise more, right? You're going to have some kind of routine. You're going to eat better, and you're going to exercise. So when do we always start those things? January 1st, right? So January 1st hits, and you are on board, right? You are up early in the morning. You are ready to go. You are doing great. And for the first week, two weeks, month, or more, hey, things go really well. But then what happens? discouragement hits your life. Let's be honest, you're really tired of getting up early in the morning, right? You come down with a sickness and you find it really hard to keep working out because you can't breathe. And you know what? From time to time, you may gain a little boost And get back into it. But if the discouragement that you face isn't addressed, it turns into apathy in your life once again. And sooner than you thought, you're right back to the late night snacks, the afternoon candy bars, and all the unhealthy habits that you said once and for all, I'm going to put these away. Right? That's how it happens. And I picked some silly little thing like an exercise routine, but you can probably apply that to many other parts of your life. And the same thing happens in our spiritual lives. We want to do right. And with God's help, we do that right. We want to react spiritually to the things that God brings into our lives. We want to take action for him. We want to commit to serving him wholeheartedly. And we do that, but, but then in our spiritual lives, something happens and we get discouraged. Something doesn't go the way we thought it was going to go. People don't react the way we thought they were going to react, and we get discouraged. Our commitment to God seems to waver and seems to falter. And our obedience to God feels very difficult and forced. And in those moments, it's very easy to go from discouragement to apathetic. I mean, we tried to obey God and we failed. So what's the point? We know the Lord. That's enough, right? The Israelites were God's people and he loved them with an everlasting love. I mean, that didn't change, right? the opposition proved they they weren't supposed to actually follow through with the rebuild. I mean, wasn't that right? And so what you find is the phrase, the time has not yet come, really comes to mean I have better things to do. And the same is true for us today. The people had now fallen into apathetic excuse-making when they should have been obeying God. And we can see that because Here's the indictment in verses 3 through 5 that God, that, that God, through Haggai, lays on his people. Then the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet, saying, Is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses, and this temple to lie in ruins? Now therefore, says, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. So as Haggai's message continues, the picture comes into focus. The people said, the time has not yet come. The time wasn't right to build the temple. Yet, the time was more than right for them to build their own homes. God's house of worship lay in ruins, open to the elements, and broken while they dwelt in completed homes. There's an interesting word that's used here. In verse 4, it says, it's time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses. The word paneled here... And its usage has had some debate surrounding it over the years. There's a couple of things it can mean. Number one, it can carry the meaning of a, a home bearing luxurious paneling, decorative paneling on the outside of the house. Now such would be the case for a home of at least the leadership of people. Maybe uh, where Zerubbabel or other people like that lived. More than likely though, it's a word that implies completeness from ground to roof. In comparison to the, to the temple of God, which was broken down, had only the foundation laid, it was open to the elements, the people lived in lavish, completed homes. Everything about their home was done. Everything they needed to live and life, and more so, was finished. And what God was saying is, your priorities are not in the right place, Their homes flourished while God's temple floundered. And this, God says, is the evil they have done. They have been claiming the time wasn't right to obey God, but the time had certainly been right for them to take care of themselves. Well, we don't really have time to obey God, but we have time to take care of our own desires. And now God calls for them to take on some much-needed Perspective. What does he command them to do at the end of verse 5? Consider your ways. Take a step back. Take a look at what's going on in your life. Reconsider your priorities. It is true that they needed somewhere to live, right? But there were some things that could have waited. Well, they restored the place most vital to their lives, the house of God. God's people were called to live lives that revolved around God. We think about that. That's what God called them to do. Live your life revolving around me. But so often, as is so often the case in the lives of people, even those who claim to serve God, they live lives that revolved around themselves. Folks, can we just ask this question? How often is this the case for God's people today? Sadly, it's all too often, is it not? Sadly, even as followers of God, it's true in our own lives. Personal time with God. A time where you can sit and read God's word and spend time talking to him. That personal devotional time with God is so often sacrificed on the altar of a busy schedule. The altar of a desire for a day off. Or the pride of feeling I don't need it and many other reasons. You say, hey listen, I don't have time for God today. I'm too busy. I have this to do. I have that to do. But you know what? At the same time, we have plenty of time to work on the car, to play video games, to spend time on our phones, to get our chores done, or frankly, just to sit around and do nothing. And those things fit pretty well into our supposedly overcrowded schedules. It's not that we don't have the time, it's that we don't make the time to obey God. Apathy has shifted the priorities of our lives. Listen, you go to any church in America on Sunday evening, and you're going to find something. Church attendance plummets on Sunday nights and Wednesday nights. And the myriad of feeble excuses is almost amusing. Well, you know, this is our family night. You know, I've really had a long week. I need to prepare myself for go to work on Monday. I, you know, i got a game to watch. Well, you know, I just don't think I have to be there. These are the reasons that people give. And in reality, you and I are giving our time somewhere to something or someone. But what we're doing is elevating above the one we're called to serve. Giving the gospel to those around us makes us shrink back with fear. And in reality, that fear has turned to apathy in our hearts. I mean, we care for people that need the gospel, but not enough to do something about it. As long as I can do my stuff in the time that I've allotted, I'll be okay. And may God in his grace call us to reevaluate our priorities in our life in serving him. In reality, he is the one who gives us strength to live for him. He is the one who deserves our best. He is the one that we owe everything to. And we must recognize that apathy towards the things of God has consequences in our lives. It most certainly had to the people of Israel. Look what Haggai says tonight in verse 6. He says there are consequences in your life because you have been apathetic towards obeying God. You have sown much and bring in little. You eat, but do not have enough. You drink, but you are not filled with drink. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages, earns wages to put into a bag with holes. So in the Old Testament, I mentioned this earlier, God's covenant with his people, you read the law, came with covenant curses and blessings. Obedience brought blessing, disobedience brought consequences. And Haggai and other prophets like him would thus interpret the signs of the times in light of God's covenant with his people. He would point them again to, here is the covenant you made with God. And here we see this occur. The people were were here, they're back in Jerusalem, they're trying to rebuild their lives in a ruined city. And they were struggling to make ends meet, let alone get ahead in life. They were sowing as, as, as Haggai says here, you have sown much. They were sowing much seed, but they were reaping meager harvests. And this is an alarming thing in a nation who relied much on their crops that they grew. People there relied a lot on that. They, they were substance, subsistence farming, right? I mean, this is what I need to live on. They were eating drinking and clothing themselves, Haggai says, but it was never enough. They could not satiate themselves. They could not find a way to keep warm. Their work was returning for naught. He says at the end of verse 6, that he who earns wages earns wages to put into a bag with holes. The ones who hired themselves out to help others could never make enough. That's picture of the money bag with holes, and not and, and that time they didn't really pay each other in coins, but in disks of, of, of different weights and different things like that. The idea is that as soon as you put that money in the bag, it's gone because it's going right out the other end. It's an instantaneous loss of anything they financially acquire. The people neglected God's work and therefore they experienced not only a lack of blessing, but they were experiencing the chastisement of God on their lives. God knew exactly what would get the attention of his people. They were physically unable to provide for themselves and were floundering. And Haggai shows the people, hey, this is God's judgment on you for the sin you have committed. For 16 years you have let the work sit. Now, under the covenant of grace established in the shed blood and resurrection of Jesus Christ, we do not experience necessarily the same curses and blessings of the Israelites. I'm not here tonight to tell you, hey, you know, this is covenant theology and here we are, we're the new Israel. However, we do recognize that God does still seek to get the attention of his own and chastises them for their sin. The Bible communicates that very clearly to us in the New Testament. So we do well to evaluate our life experiences before the Lord and our relationship to him. Could it be that the difficulties that we face in our lives... That the struggles that plague us and the unsettledness in our hearts, they don't need more money, more medication, noise, or sleep thrown at them. But instead, they need to be addressed by a spiritual course correction. That God is trying to tell you something. Hey, I want you to serve me, not yourself. God's graciousness in our lives is seen in conviction. We don't like the word conviction. It's kind of an uncomfortable word. How many of you are are uncomfortable with the word conviction? Thank you. I see that hand. Thank you. Okay. Because we think of conviction, we think of like, oh, man. Right? Does anybody else? Just me. Do you realize that conviction is God's grace? That if you are his child, he will not let you continue in sin without conviction. That's a great thing. That he isn't going to let you be comfortable and content in your sin. Instead, he stirs up our lives that we may evaluate what is going on and then, remain, then respond to the accountability that he's holding on us. And this is what Haggai was sent to tell the people of God. He's come to tell them, hey, you see all these things that are going on in your life? You see all these, these awful things? You see how you, you can't even make ends meet in your life? This is God trying to tell you, I need you to obey me. And I'll take care of you. What did Jesus Christ Tell his followers. He told them the most important thing you could do is love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. To follow him above all else. He told them to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And what? All these things shall be added unto you. What is he talking about? Follow me. I'll take care of the details. Now, this is not a call to, hey, if you follow God, you can just sit around on your backside and you'll have health, wealth, and a condo on the beach. We still have to work hard, don't we? We still have to be disciplined and follow him. But we have to put following him first above all else. And when we don't, God and his grace convicts us. And next time, we'll see the call to action that comes with conviction. Because conviction doesn't just come on its own. It comes with, okay, here's what's wrong, and here's what God wants you to do instead. But we'll have to save that for next time, otherwise we might be here all night. But what we see here tonight is delayed obedience is disobedience. And disobedience leads to God's appointed, God-appointed consequences. The Israelites, once again, in this passage, chose... To love themselves more than God. You see, any time we place our own priorities, desires, and comfort above serving the Lord, we do the same thing. We choose to love ourselves more than we love God. And God has issued an overarching call to, on the lives of those who belong to him. What is the call that God has called you to? To obey him. We talked about that this morning. Jesus said, the, mark, the hallmark of disciples is Obedience. If you belong to God in salvation, you are called to live for him. And I think this is the thing that sadly sometimes we we begin to believe in our lives. We begin to think, well, apathy is kind of the norm. It's not the norm. It's to be confronted in our lives. We're not called to just kind of sit around, well, I'll do what I need to for God and this. That's apathy. God's called us to active obedience. Haggai confronted apathy under God's inspiration in 520 B.C., but apathy isn't just a 520 B.C. problem. It's a 2023 problem, too, A.D. Make that clarification, right? Apathy will rob you of a vibrant walk with God because you cannot disobey God and expect everything to be okay. We live in a world that wants happiness and satisfaction. But outside of Jesus, no one will ever find happiness and satisfaction. And we as Christians are also guilty of wanting satisfaction and happiness from the things that we have in life or the experiences that we want in life. But outside of properly giving God his preliminary place in our lives, we're not going to find happiness or satisfaction either. So let us make time for God. Let us give him the priority he deserves, and everything else will fall under as we serve the Lord with our lives. Father, thank you for your word and its power to change our lives. Thank you for the message of Haggai. Thank you for this man who lived all so long ago. But thank you for his faithfulness to deliver the word you gave him. Lord, we pray tonight that you would use your word in our hearts. You would convict us of our sin. You would show us the sin of apathy. Lord, if we're honest, we're so happy to sometimes commit such a sin because we don't want to be pushed. We don't want to be held accountable. But Lord, in your grace, you love us more than that. And you convict us of our sin, and you show us, hey, we need to answer to you. So Lord, we pray that you would help us to catch fire for you, to live for you, and be filled with your spirit. Be with us now as we close our service and we go home and we prepare for a new week. Help us to be filled with a desire to live for your honor, your glory, in your name we pray, Amen.